weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, February 15, 2008. I'm Leslie Taylor. Vijay Vaithiswaran was the global environment and energy correspondent for The Economist from 1998 to 2006. He is a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations and an adjunct faculty member at New York University. His book, Power to the People, How the Coming Energy Revolution Will Transform an Industry, Change Our Lives, and Maybe Even Save the Planet, has been called the most helpful, entertaining, up-to-date, and accessible treatment of the energy, economy, environment problematic available. His newest book, Zoom, The Global Race to Fuel the Car of the Future, investigates the relationship among global warming, the government, and the auto industry. He gave the following lecture at the New York Academy of Sciences as part of the Science and the City author series. We're here to talk about the future of energy and the environment, but I thought I would start by looking to the past. Over six decades ago, Mahatma Gandhi asked a question that's still relevant today. He asked, how many planets? Now, bear in mind, this was a time when India was the newly emerged hope of Asia, a giant emerging from colonial, uh, from the colonial past. Britain was the colonial power, the economic superpower of the previous few hundred centuries, so a few hundred years, I should say. The question he asked was, how many planets will it take if India follows the same path of industrialism that Britain has taken that has already consumed half the world's resources? How many planets? As we think about the world's energy and environmental future here in the 21st century, we may want to uh, update that, that citation if, to reflect the concerns of today. We might well ask, how many planets will it take if China follows the same path of motorization, urbanization, and industrialization that the United States has taken? How many planets will it take if every Chinese jumps into a Hummer the way that many Americans like to do? That at least is how the question is now framed. If you were to read the New York Times or many of the other journals, uh, it is a question that comes up uh, almost on a weekly basis of the pollution in China. I think all of us are New Yorkers. We see the papers, um, and uh, as well as uh, the role of the United States as a global warming emitter. The problems are certainly real when they look at the energy realm. I hope to argue tonight that the problems are real, but so too is the opportunity for change that we are truly at an energy crossroads, one that may last a decade or two at most, an opportunity to be seized uh, during which time we can really set the world on a much more sustainable footing before the several billion people that are now emerging into the world economy and at a very rapid pace in places like India, China, South Africa, Brazil, places that have been dubbed uh, the BRICS economies by Goldman Sachs, this is a once-in-a-lifetime, indeed, perhaps even the biggest event to happen to the world economy, it has been argued, since the discovery of the new world. But as these new emerging middle-class consumers and uh, countries that are becoming fully integrated into the global economy set down their energy footprint and their environmental footprint, will they choose the dirty, inefficient energy infrastructure of 50 years ago? Or will they leapfrog ahead to more innovative, nimbler technologies, business models, much more sustainable approaches? This is one of the great questions that we have in front of us. And I argue this is more than simply an academic 
question. Uh, indeed, I would put to you, this is one of the central questions of the 21st century. One, if we have to answer the question of sustainability, we have to get energy and environment right. Why? Because there are three linkages that I see that uh, fundamentally make the current energy paradigm unsustainable. There's the link between energy and poverty, which doesn't get very much attention at all. The link between energy and environment, which certainly gets much more attention. And ultimately, energy and geopolitics, which is going to get much more unwelcome attention as we go forward. Just to turn to each of these in turn briefly. Energy and poverty. Somewhere between 1.6 billion to 2 billion people on Earth Perhaps as many as a, a, you know, a quarter to a third of humanity live with no formal access to modern energy, no clean fuels, no electricity. And, of course, you folks are here in this room. Uh, you're members of the New York Academy of Sciences. You'll know that this is the result of uh, people burning uh, whatever fuel. You can't live without energy. This is not to say they have no energy. This means that people in sub-Saharan Africa, southern Asia, parts of Latin America and the Caribbean use dirty, solid fuels. Mostly it's women and girls in these countries who walk miles a day to fetch whatever solid, inefficient fuel they can. It might be agricultural residue, it might be cow dung, really filthy stuff. And they walk hours, they will come back to their huts, and they burn in very inefficient makeshift cook stoves. These solid fuels that result in partial combustion leads to indoor pollution that the World Health Organization calculates as one of the leading preventable causes of death on Earth. Something that approaches malnutrition as a leading preventable cause of death. But when was the last time you heard a, a Live Aid concert to stamp out the cow dung fires in India? Hey, even Angelina Jolie doesn't care. It's not a sexy issue. But if we think about the human condition, then of course if you, this is a moral outrage. And if you look beyond that, if you take a view, not just the Homer Simpson view of sort of you know, what's it got to do with me? I didn't put those people in that position, but rather a perspective of even if you were to take that Homer Simpson view, simply because these economies are growing and increasingly people are coming onto the world market demanding energy use, you suddenly see the second of the great pillars of instability emerging. The energy use in the developing world is knocking on the door of environmental sustainability. Uh, the link between energy and environment particularly the needlessly inefficient and dirty ways that we use energy today. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not anti-energy. On the contrary, I think energy is a wonderful thing. We should all be able to use energy, but not in the needlessly inefficient and dirty ways that we do now. As the developing world enters the world economy in a big way, and if more and more energy is used, if it comes from dirty sources like pulverized coal plants of the sort that make up more than 50% of the U.S. electricity grid today, old-fashioned approaches that are quite inefficient and dirty, then it really leads to tremendous concerns. The local pollution concerns we're familiar with. You know, anybody who has been to uh, Los Angeles or uh, remembers the smog in Pittsburgh or the London fog. Some people, uh, I see a lot of young faces in the room, you might just think that's a quaint phrase, the London fog. Um, maybe something to do with a, an old raincoat your grandpa used to wear. Um, in fact, the London fog was a killer uh, for centuries. Uh, the combination of uh, coal burning uh, in central London uh, conspired with the atmospheric conditions. Uh, in 1952, an episode of London Fog killed perhaps as many as 10,000 people prematurely on the latest evidence. This is stunning, and it led directly to an act of parliament that banned burning of coal in central London. 
And similarly, other cities of the, of the rich world have managed to clean up their air on local conditions. But anyone who's been to China recently, you know that most of the world's filthiest cities right now are in China. Uh, that honor used to belong to Mexico City when I lived there in the 1990s. Let me tell you, it's no honor at all. It, it was a real disgrace. Uh, and China has only surpassed that odd title by getting dirtier, not because Mexico got dramatically cleaner. Um, so this is a real problem, local pollution, because it's a direct killer of people. But the longer-term challenge of cl- climate change. Again, I don't need to belabor the point, the linkage between uh, how we use energy and the potential damage for future generations and for places that are removed from the point of burning fossil fuels via climate change, as well as land use changes, of course. But that's not all. If that were the only thing, that would be bad enough. But I would put to you that the needlessly dirty and inefficient ways that mankind uses energy are the single most powerful way in which we foul the natural environment, far beyond the examples of pollution that I've given you, the obvious examples. Let me take an unobvious example. Um, Water. Now, how how often have we all heard that the next great global crisis will be about water or the next world war could be over water, right? We all have read this, perhaps some of you have written this, in which case perhaps you'll find my comments very offensive. Uh, I have to be a little amused. I always uh, smile when I see such a, a phrase like, Water is the great crisis the world faces now. Maybe it's just the old MIT engineer in me. I say, you know, I look at this problem and I say, well, aren't there solutions? Uh, Isn't the earth covered in water, first of all? Um, Yes, it's in the wrong place. And I don't want to trivialize the problem. Of course, there are serious questions about where the water is and people who need it, often the poorest and most disenfranchised people in societies uh, around the world. But that's not a scientific problem. This is a question of political will. It's not even an economic problem. It doesn't cost that much to get the water to people or to provide sanitation. These are really troubles. Uh, As Amartya Sen showed with food and famine, these are questions of political will. This is not an economic and certainly not a scientific or technological problem of the same order, for example, as challenging HIV. An old classmate of mine is now working at Rockefeller University on HIV vaccines. And in her private moments, expresses the doubt that you know this is a very, very difficult problem. It may be beyond the genius of womankind, in her view, uh, to, to, to solve this. But water is not the same sort of problem. We can desalinate water today. In fact, a number of countries do that. But here's the problem. If you do that, it's very energy intensive. It takes a lot of energy to desalinate water. If you use dirty energy to, to make your desalinated water, all you're doing is shuffling the environmental problem from one part of the ledger over to the other. Whereas if we solve the energy problem first, we have access to cheap, decentralized, readily available clean energy, then you can solve the water problem, along with many other issues that are environmental and not apparently energy-related. Dealing with recycling, for example, or chemical waste. These are issues that require enormous amounts of energy. And if we do the proper life cycle analysis, you will see that we have to get energy right. Otherwise, we simply shuffle things around. That's why I say... Energy is the fundamental key to getting sustainability. Or to put it the other way around, the great aspiration that we all share in the 21st century of sustainable development is impossible unless we get energy right first. So that's the second linkage, the second pillar of instability, why the current system, I argue to you, cannot continue. The third will become much more apparent as we go forward, of course, is uh, the link between energy and geopolitics. And on this front, oil is the principal culprit. Again, I'm not in the camp that thinks that oil is about to run out tomorrow. 
Uh, and I'm also not going to stand here and argue that it's a lousy fuel. It's not. You know, I, I've studied enough of my engineering to know that it is a, a tremendously good fuel. It is, a, a, in fact, probably the most energy-dense fuel that we, we have in common application. It's really good at moving a car. The problem is it comes from parts of the world that are very problematic. And oil is very concentrated. Two-thirds of the world's proven reserves of conventional oil are in the hands of just five countries. Saudi Arabia, which holds perhaps a 25% share, and its four immediate neighbors. We know this is a difficult part of the world. It's not only undemocratic, but um, as members of the OPEC cartel, their business is to hold prices up. There are, uh, this is a part of the world also that contains the cheapest oil and the largest known reserves of oil going forward. So on every official forecast, 10 years and especially 20 years out from now, on business as usual, meaning no interventions uh, by public policy, the Saudi share will be dramatically higher and the Middle East OPEC control of the global oil market and therefore the influence on the world economy and therefore the potential for a geopolitical shock dramatically higher in 10 to 20 years' time. Is the, that's not a world that I think it's, it's worth taking that risk, entering that world, which is why I argue, not because oil's running out or even because it's so terrible, but because of the economic and geopolitical risks associated with it, as well as, of course, the environmental externalities of pollution when you burn out the tailpipe, the global warming externalities, which will come when you burn gasoline in an internal combustion engine, you produce greenhouse gases. There's no two ways or there's no way around that. And so for all these reasons, I argue that we need to move off of oil over time. And that's really the focus of Zoom, showing how the car companies of the world dramatically investing to move forward in a number of societies around the world. Um, parts of the United States, like California, but countries like Brazil, where over 80% of the new cars built today can work equally well on sugarcane ethanol or on gasoline, you know, using what they call flex fuel technology. And it, it's practically free. It costs less than $50 per car uh, since they've achieved mass market economies of scale. And other technologies like electricity or flexible fuel approaches using biodiesel uh, plug-in hybrids. There's a variety of technologies. Hydrogen, the longest-term hope. Some people think it's a hoax. Nevertheless, there's a tremendous race underway. And I think that's important because if you look to the geopolitical calendar going ahead 10 to 20 years, again, in a, in a world where on business as usual, the Middle East OPEC share is going to be dramatically higher, what do we have on the world stage that's different? Going back to Gandhi's question, we have India and we have China. One of the most important reasons oil prices shot up to $100 earlier this year when there were only $10 a barrel back in 1998. About half the explanation for that, according to the IMF, was the emergence of China as a dramatic importer of oil. This was not foreseen in the numbers that had happened by anybody. And this is an extraordinary arrival as an energy importer by a country that has been throughout its entire history an energy exporter. This had some important implications. You know, to, again, to go back to the Homer Simpson analogy, China is knocking on your door. You may be sitting in your recliner, but you're paying more for your gasoline because of how the developing world is using energy. But there's more. Again, because the oil is concentrated and only where on earth God put it, this has led off, uh, to a geopolitical scramble, a national security scramble. Why? Because the Chinese leadership particularly is concerned about the geopolitical implications of becoming reliant on Middle East oil, a part of the world where they know the U.S. 
is quite influential and where they know they don't have a blue water navy to defend their the reserves. If there were to be any kind of conflict between the United States and China over the 2025 year horizon, and I'm not forecasting it, but of course it's it's a realistic scenario over Taiwan or something else, the hard men of the, of the military in China know push comes to shove the US can cut off their supplies of oil. And that more than any other environmental factor you'll hear in the newspapers is the reason why China is moving aggressively on energy efficiency and alternative fuels. It's not because they care so much about global warming. It's really because of this concern about over-reliance on oil. And what are they doing about it? We've seen they've gone on a global scramble. If you go to Kazakhstan, if you look at Ecuador, if you look at Venezuela, if you look at the tar sands in Canada, if you look in the Sudan, where the Chinese help is propping up a genocidal government at the moment, oil interests, China's oil interests play an important role. Their calculation that they need to buy strategic oil. I personally think that's the wrong way to think about it. As a market-minded guy, I would argue that oil is a fungible global commodity. The ownership of oil doesn't matter as long as it gets to market. Indeed, I would put to you a contrarian argument that the more Chinese invest in oil, the better it is for the United States. You might say, well, how is that possible? Um, The real enemy of consumer welfare are when producers like Venezuela or Russia or the Saudis underinvest in producing oil. And that's what's happening in Venezuela. That's what's happening in Russia by driving out foreign investment or in other ways disinvesting by lowering production through cartel action or underinvestment. You harm consumers in the United States. When a a country like China or India buys an oil asset in Kazakhstan, they have every incentive to invest to pump the oil to get it to their markets. And every barrel that they bring to their own market from Kazakhstan, it's one less barrel they have to buy on the NYMEX. It leaves more for you and me. Whereas when producers underproduce, that's the true enemy of consumer welfare. So, So the Chinese overpaying for all these assets. We should cheer them on. But is that what we do? Of course not. When the Chinese tried to buy a company called Unical, some of you may remember this from a few years ago in the headlines, it's actually a, a mid-sized gas company, not very significant in the world league table, and most of its oil and gas is anyway sold in Asia. Uh, almost inevitably it was going to end up to, going to China. We kicked up such an ugly xenophobic fuss in Washington, we effectively scared them off. And we basically made it clear we won't let you buy this, frankly, irrelevant company through market means and the open market bidding for it. So what's the lesson the Chinese took away? They said, if we can't come in and our money isn't good enough to buy these oil companies, we're going to have to use other means, diplomatic means or other sorts of means that uh, might contravene the U.S. interest. And that's exactly what they've done. As I mentioned, the examples throughout Africa and the Middle East, even in Saudi Arabia, which may be the most nationalistic country on earth when it comes to its energy resources. Not one drop of Saudi oil will be privatized, I can assure you, in the lifetime of the, of the certainly the Saud ruling family. But on gas, they decided, well, let's open up a little bit. Uh, we have so much oil and it takes a lot of investment to get gas going. So they began to slowly give out a concession a couple of years ago. Now, when they decided to give their first concession in natural gas, did they look upon their old American friends who supported their regime for 50 years? Did they look to Chevron and to Exxon, the companies that built the Saudi energy industry? No, they didn't. The first concession they gave went to one of the Chinese national oil companies. So I say put that on your geopolitical calendar as a marker for the potential conflicts that may come if we continue the business-as-usual model of energy. And that's why I argue serious pillars, three pillars of instability, energy and poverty, energy and environment, and going forward, 
energy and geopolitics, make the current energy system unsustainable. Now, I've given you three reasons to think that I'm uh, quite pessimistic, but I want to assure you, in fact, I'm an optimist. Now, some of you will laugh after, after having heard of this, but um, The New Yorker reviewed my new book, um, good, beautiful, long review by Elizabeth Colbert, and she couldn't get over the fact there was one thing about my book she really didn't like. She accused me of being an optimist. And, of course, she's a brilliant writer on global warming, and anyone who thinks about global warming at great length perhaps becomes unduly pessimistic. But here's the case for optimism. And I, and I started with the negative because I want you to know I take the problems very seriously. But I actually think there's more opportunity for change, more opportunity for transforming the energy system today than at any time in a 100 years. We're entering a golden age of innovation not seen since the days, the heady days of Tesla and Edison, since not, not really when the, the cars and electricity industries uh, were just young, nascent, and, and new technologies were being forged, new paradigms, new business models were emerging. And let's remember, on the streets of New York, there were more electric cars than gasoline cars in 1900, and Henry Ford's Model T was a flex-fuel vehicle that ran on ethanol as well as on gasoline. There have been other great eras of innovation, but we settled into a paradigm in, with particularly the auto industries and its symbiotic twin, the oil industry, uh, in which there was incremental innovation. Using, uh, a lot of the energy of innovation went into political lobbying Washington rather than tapping the really outstanding engineering and science resources uh, for truly breakthrough changes in, in the business model. What are my reasons for, for hope then? Again, I think there are three mega trends that I've seen in my 15 years at The Economist studying this topic. Um, first, I see that there is a, a real transformation towards competition in an industry that is the least innovative big business on earth. The liberalization of energy markets in uh, industries that have long been dominated by cartels, by cozy uh, sort of cliques, by companies that have been heavily regulated and not rewarded for innovation is fundamentally changing in fits and starts. And we, we can always look at the fiasco of California's electricity mess a few years ago or specific examples like that. But if you look over the last 25 years, uh, we've seen a dramatic move towards rewarding innovators, towards a, a, ch a change in paradigm. Why does this matter? Well, you might say, well, you're a guy from The Economist. Of course, you're going to say free markets are great. And you know what? Sure, I, I stand accused uh, and uh, guilty as charged. I do think competitive markets by and large, lead to more efficient outcomes than the other kind. But that's not why I'm making this argument to you today. I do it because I believe energy is the least innovative big business on earth. I needed a swift kick in the pants. And here's, I made a big statement, so let me back it up. If you look at just one part of the energy industry, the electricity industry, the U.S. electricity industry is a colossal enterprise. Uh, it's, it's such a, a stunning work of engineering, an astonishing accomplishment. The National Academies of Engineering, when they looked at the leading accomplishments of the 20th century, they didn't put television or space travel or the Internet number one. Their number one on their list, and again, many people in this room would know, was grid electrification, right? So I'm not knocking it, but here's the problem. If you ask, how innovative is it? The answer is not very less than one-half of one percent of the industry's turnover goes into R&D. And that figure has been true for the last 30 years. 
If you look at any vaguely innovative industry, typically the numbers are 4 or 5% of turnover going into R&D. If you were to look at pharma, if you were to look at biotech, if you were to look at IT, you often see numbers closer to 15%, young, hungry industries. For 30 years, we've been underinvesting. That's why we have an electricity grid that's over 30 years old on average, the power plants. We haven't invested in our transmission lines. Our lines are creaking. We fundamentally got the incentives wrong. And so that's why I say, and again, those figures I gave you are not from some consultant. They're from the Electric Power Research Institute, the industry's own research body. We've grossly underinvested in this business. Um, so the first point, this is an enabler of innovation. That's my only point. Sometimes we'll get it wrong, but broadly speaking, we've, you know, we've gotten it wrong by not encouraging the two guys in the garage that it came up with Hewlett-Packard, and the market rewarded them for transforming IT and ultimately bringing us the chaotic, anarchic, but marvelous forces of the digital revolution. I want them working in energy. I want them in clean tech. I want them to be rewarded, and including the removal of perverse subsidies for dirty energies. You know, fundamental policy reform would be part of this, That's put this leveling of the playing field. The second great megatrend, there's a new kind of environmentalism that's spreading in the developing world as much as it is in the rich world. If you look back in the 1970s, the first great wave of modern environmentalism, you know, the, the uh, first Earth Day led to the Clean Water Act, the, uh, the Clean Air Act. That was an era when pollution problems were pretty obvious, right? You know, the air was filthy. If you walked around in Los Angeles, it felt like a man was standing on your chest. That's what the mayor of Riverdale, California, told me. He was one of those campaigners in the early days. And it was a time when um, basic... Uh, environmental pollution was simply mandate, regulate, litigate. That's the axiom of the environmental uh, organizations that led that fight. Why? Because it was pretty clear who the polluters were. When you saw the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland burst spontaneously into flames uh, arising from the pollution, you didn't need a whole lot of complex science to figure out what was going on. But you know what? We've gone to a phase where, in fact, the air and water are much, much cleaner today on almost every measure, despite what some of the activist groups who still put out in their press releases. The world, particularly the rich world, is much, much cleaner than it was. But when you're trying to get out the last 5% of a given pollutant, it can often be much more expensive at the margin than getting out the first 50%. We need much more complicated, nuanced tools, whether they're cost-benefit analyses, whether they're the smart tools driven by what I would call market-based instruments. And here, the United States has been a pioneer. We essentially solved the acid rain problem, the SO2 problem, through our acid rain trading mechanism, which is very controversial. Environmentalists denounced it, with the noble exception of one environmental group. It was denounced as a terrible program that was evil, it was allowing the right to pollute to be traded. The utility said it's going to bankrupt America. And of course, what happened? This market-based instrument now, it's a, a pillar of our a modern economy and copied around the world for carbon trading and other things. So. Similarly, Europe pioneered eco-taxation. Again, this is a way consistent with markets where if you have pollution taxes on things that are dirty, whether it's nuclear waste, whether it's carbon, whether it's other kinds of pollution, you tax things that are dirty, you reduce taxes on labor, for example, where Europe had very high taxes, and you do this eco-taxation reform. It has been very successful in Scandinavia and a number of other countries around the world, New Zealand, for example. It, that's something where we can learn from other parts of the world. You're seeing environmental organizations in New Delhi, in Beijing, in Brasilia, and in Boston embracing a new kind of environmentalism that doesn't see the markets as just an enemy lumping them together with big, fat corporate profits. Rather, a sophisticated use of market-based instruments as a tool in their toolkit 
and finding out that there you can actually find powerful allies in removing subsidies rather than just asking for a couple of more bucks of subsidy for windmills, go after the bigger bucks that are showered on your uh, dirtier opponents. So this sophistication, I think, is leading to a much more intelligent conversation that bodes very well. One, because we can solve, roll up our sleeves and solve problems, move beyond the old left-right corporate versus environment debate. And the final point, and I won't belabor it because I've already mentioned it, is we are entering a truly a golden age of innovation, thanks partly to uh, the the problems that I've already outlined, but partly to dramatic advances in material science and battery technology, whether it's software and computing on board, the electrification of the car, whatever fuel it uses, the car itself is dramatically more uh, electrified in terms of software systems uh, uh, as well as hardware. What I call not just the juice, but the jalopy, uh, the transformation of the, the f- not just the fuel, but also the, the, the car itself is happening. And that what now needs to happen for the grid. We need to transform to a smart digital grid, what I call the energy internet, something that's worthy of being the backbone to the digital uh, economy of the 21st century. And as this comes together, I see we're, we're going to have an extraordinary opportunity to tackle those three mega trends, the, the problems with environment, geopolitics, and poverty, and ultimately to answer Gandhi's question. How many planets? Well, we all know we have only one planet. We need to learn how to reconcile the legitimate needs and aspirations of developing countries with the equally legitimate concerns about the environment in rich countries. The only way we can resolve that powerful tension is if we tap into the one natural resource that we have in infinite quantity that I'm delighted to see in this room of all places, the room of scientists. And that resource is ingenuity. Thanks very much. To find out about all that's happening at the intersection of science and culture, visit our website at scienceandthecity.org. 